Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, president of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. This is episode 29 of Australian Anesthesia. It's a podcast where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Today, I am chatting with three anaesthetists, Georgie Cameron, Anna Peach, and Amelia Reese from Queensland, who wrote the document about trainees returning to work. This document was published by the Wellbeing Special Interest Group, of which the ASA is one of the parent bodies, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Now, this episode is not just for trainees. If you work with trainees in your department, if you're a colleague, a boss, a supervisor, a mentor, then this episode is for you. We talk about one of the most common reasons, which is parental leave, but it's not the only reason and some of the challenges in returning to work and what we can do to support people at this time. Okay, hope you enjoy listening. Thanks so much for giving up some time and recording this podcast with me. I thought we'd go through this excellent document about the trainee returning to work, which you guys just wrote. We just started and wanted to make something a little bit more concise and evidence-based and available because we all had been through it and done our own independent trawling of the literature and independent soul-searching when we came back to work. Hopefully it serves as that kind of a tool, like a go-to guide for trainees who were like us. Was it in 2018 or so that it came out? We started working on it in 2018. I think quite a few of us were writing things for our own department. And then we all heard about each other doing similar work. And then we all got together um, and thought we'd pull our resources. Were you surprised that there hadn't been anything that had been written in 2018? I was surprised that I could find so little about pregnancy and work. Because I do remember looking it up when I was pregnant. And it was very hard to find any sort of evidence around safe working practices for doctors when pregnant. And most of the stuff that I learned or was told was just off the cuff comments about, oh, should you be doing gas inductions if you're pregnant? Or you should leave the room because we're using cement. Would you like to not be rostered to radiology because you're pregnant? And it was very hard to quantify the risk. So you've studied the literature, you've written the document, and you've, you've all got the lived experience of having to plan leave, take leave and return from leave. And I think the thing you've probably highlighted is the fact that there kind of is all this stuff out there, but I think sometimes, and you probably find this in your job all the time, it's our ability to access it. And that's what we all found is when we started digging and looking for information, we realized that actually in lots of hospitals, people were kind of reinventing the wheel, I guess. And so I think it was about having a central point where everyone could find the information that was national, that was available and that people knew about. Oh, I absolutely agree with that approach. I love the way it's structured. So you've divided it up. There's, you know, an introduction and background and you do a really good job of outlining what the document's for. And then you really make it very simple for people to walk through it in terms of thinking about what they're going to need before they go on leave, what they're going to need to do whilst they're on leave and then how to come back from leave. I wanted to go to the start just when people are thinking about going on leave. What are some of your key messages there? The thing that we thought was really important was that I guess it's a deliberate process. It can feel like it sort of happens and unfolds and it's difficult to plan. But I think actually having a plan before you go on leave, really thinking about where you're up to, where what's happened with your volume of practice, where it sits within your training in regards to kind of courses. So I think that's probably the beginning bit is looking at the timeline and seeing where it's going to fit for your family, but also for your training as well. 
There's even a step, I suppose, before that about the choice that many women or many families make about when to time that pregnancy. I know for me, it wasn't something that I had a lot of control over. I think it just happened when it happened. And I and people often, often come up and ask about where is the spot to do it? You know, is it better as a consultant, better as a trainee, better before exams, better after exams? And you know what the answer to that is. <laughs> There's never a good time. And I think everyone thinks that they've found this perfect niche, like I'm going to do it right there. But ultimately, I think it happens when it happens. And I think you kind of just have to adapt. So it's happened. You've gotten pregnant and you're planning leave. So your main thing is to be be deliberate about it. I like how it's worded as a needs analysis, but there seems like there's a fair bit of paperwork. Not only is it all the things that you can imagine with, especially your first pregnancy of, you know, feeling unwell and the kind of physical and mental things, but there's actually, you know, especially being a trainee, there's so many things that you do have to do. I think you can um, let APRA know, you obviously need to complete paperwork with your hospital, but also with ANSCA as well to let them know that you're actually planning to take time off. And the flip side of that is that there are some discounts as well um, in regards to memberships and also with your registration as well and indemnity. So I guess there are lots of different bits of paperwork to think about when you are pregnant on top of all the other things. It's very good to think about planning your return, about whether you're going to come back as part-time or full-time and if so, how are you going to manage that with the part-time and speak to your supervisors or rotational coordinators in order to find out whether that can happen in your region because it's very different at different hospitals. And it wasn't something that I was even aware was possible with my first pregnancy. I just assumed I had to go back full time. I know, you know, from my experience as, as having a child once I'd already been a consultant, I could say, oh, I'll think I'll come back in 12 months. And then at six months, I said, oh, I'm getting a bit bored. Do you still think that that's as flexible when you're a trainee? Not, a, not at all. It's hard because you move between different hospitals. So often you have to time your return with the next term starting. And that next term is often at another hospital. And there's also the issue of moving between hospitals and having paid maternity leave, whether you are eligible for that, which is something that you also need to find out about and speak to HR about before you take your leave. Being a new consultant, Susie, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, ruminating this year about how much more flexible my life is, you know, and if I need to take time off or I want to drop days, whereas I didn't feel I had that flexibility, you know, in definitely in my first return to work. I think there are some hospitals that do a really good job of supporting part-time work and job shares and others that don't, some that don't offer it at all. Like it wasn't something that was actually offered at the first hospital I returned to. Is it also because there's a training requirement? So I've heard about this in other specialties to say there's no point coming back at any other than the start of the training term because they only count three-month or six-month blocks. I know I definitely did an extra six or seven months of training just to fit in with the terms and fellowship starting and that sort of thing. I found ANSCA pretty good at that, Susie. So I think OBS and Gynea are one of the colleges that are quite particular about the counting of time, but I found it was all just calculated out. And if you worked six months at 0.5, you know what I mean? It sort of counted towards three months worth of training. So actually, I found the flexibility around that in regards to kind of your training time was actually really good. That's good. I think we do have one of the more progressive colleges in that regard. So that's good to hear. Could I just make a comment about returning to work and flexibility? It depends a lot on the department size. I know that rostering particularly and enabling part-time training or job sharing, a lot easier when there's more fat in the system, so like a bigger department. That's not to say that the smaller hospitals don't often try, but the onus might become more on the trainee themselves to try and work a mutually um, appropriate solution for their department than in a bigger centre. And on the back of that, 
discussing your plans early with either a rotational supervisor, which is something that we have set up in Queensland because it's quite a big state and you train in multiple different centres, trying to bring them on board early, that might actually facilitate you being rostered to a bigger hospital for the time that you might need to be part-time or a bit more flexible. So even though there's some sometimes some fear about coming forward early on to try and plan what might happen and where you might rotate to and that type of thing. Sometimes that can actually work in the trainee's favour to make sure that they're in a more supported or a bigger department that can more readily absorb the challenges that do go with part-time or flexible training. Did any of you guys come back into part-time training when you came back from leave? I did. I job shared, yeah, in a big department. I didn't immediately because it wasn't available at the hospital that I was at, but I managed to do it six months later. So that was good. And for my second child, I went back to a big hospital and I think I was one of eight part-time trainees. Yeah, it was an amazingly supportive department, amazingly accommodating, and they had a lot of different people and they kind of just flexed your days. You didn't have to job share, so they flexed it down to whatever you worked and then they linked all of your nights together and, yeah, it was amazing. Let's just say that the woman who did the trainee roster has two kids and she was amazing. What are your tips there? I was going to go through the document in order, but seeing as we're talking about returning to work part-time, because that's a decision to make before you go on leave, are there any tips that you've got for people who are thinking about doing part-time training in particular? I think Georgie summarised it well, I guess, is that thinking about it early and planning for it early, I think is probably like number one, I guess, so making it available. There are some disadvantages definitely to be a part-time trainee. So I know for me in the department I was in, if it was a three-month block of vascular, you got three months at whatever your part-time training was. So actually saying well across your volume, you know, volume of practice and your TPS, I think that was really important for me as well. And as we alluded to, after hours can be really tricky and it really depends on what's happening with your hospital and whether you're job sharing. So thinking about how that's going to actually fit into life can be really difficult. I've had that comment made to me before. I had someone who did 0.5 at two different hospitals. This is not a trainee. And they said, you never work just 0.5 at two different hospitals. You always do a bit more because people can't see you when you're not there. And it just to feel that you've got that presence. So 0.5 at two hospitals equals more like 1.2 across the board. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess you find that as a part-time trainee that it's not, it's definitely not, you know, 0.5. And you'll want to come in for teaching and things like that and exam practice and all that sort of stuff. And that's quite often on your days off. The other thing that I think, Susie, I don't think there is a magic number, but, you know, coming back at 0.5 and then having time out of the workforce, you know, feeling like that you really get your brain into work you know, is 0.5 enough to do that? But is 0.5 enough to be away from your family? Getting that balance right is really difficult and really personal. I think it's really personal. Did you all come back 0.5 when you came back and did part-time? Yeah, I came back 0.5. I did some 0.5 and then I would go up to like 0.75 and then I did cardiac full-time and then I flipped back to 0.75. And so it kind of flexed around a little bit and made it kind of fit in with life. It's interesting that you flexed around because I've heard that from other women who've come back after leave during training. And I remember one person said they just couldn't handle doing the part-time. They just had to be there, especially for a rotation like cardiac. And you have to choose your terms very carefully for when you're returning, especially if you're going to be part-time because you don't want to be doing the big terms with lots of after hours and lots of very specific things to them like cardiac. It's more ideal to get them done before you go on leave if you're well during your pregnancy. 
So that's a good tip there. Not even just to plan ahead that you might come back part-time, but into specifically what rotations to come back into if you can have a say on it. Definitely. And I guess, again, it's about sitting down and making a deliberate decision and hopefully having a good supervisor of training who can help guide you on that as well. And the earlier you do it, the more likely they are to be able to um, help support you with that because the later it is, the harder it is to change terms around um, because everyone has a different volume of practice and obviously all the other trainees have to get their volume of practice in as well. Good tip. Get in early, think about part-time and think about what rotations you need. Look hard at your volume of practice that you already have and look at what you're going to need when you come back if you're going to go into part-time training particularly would be the take-home. And then during your leave, I was very interested to read that whilst you're on leave, you can't access your TPS. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people, I know a few friends who've said, oh, that's okay. I've got all this TPS stuff to enter. And when I go on leave, I'll go and put it all in. And then you have absolutely no access to it. So it does make it really difficult. And and I guess if you want courses or if you're going to attend M&Ms while you're on leave, you know, all those things that count can count towards training, you can't actually access and put them in during that time. Can you put them in retrospectively? Is there a time limit for how far retrospectively you can put them in? You have to have it approved by your SOT at the end of that training block. So as long as you are still with them or if they're happy to say that you did that when you were on maternity leave from that training period, then that would suit. So whilst you're on your leave, what did you do? How long were you off on leave for? I had two different periods of leave. So the first time I had five months off and then with my second pregnancy I had nine months nine months was good five months was a little bit too short but the focus of leave I think really should be time with your baby bonding with your baby and not focusing too much on work until you're ready to start heading back Um, and for me definitely the, the nine months I was much more ready to come back to work than the first time around I actually had 12 months off I got into training and then fell pregnant and had 12 months off before training and I um, got in a bit of a frenzy thinking I should use that time to study for the primary exam really ineffectively. And then my second lot of lead, I had five months off, but again, thought that I would really cleverly use that time to study for the fellowship exam. So again, totally ineffectively. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because five months is short, but coming back to work at 0.5 after five months, it was hard to get your head in the game still. I had about eight months and I disregarded the advice we've written in this document and I sat the exam when I came back. It worked for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. And we do suggest that if it's possible, not trying to further complicate that return to work phase by doing a huge scholar role project or having an exam, but it doesn't always suit, you know, your training requirements. So I I did it um, and I survived, but I didn't love life for a brief period of time. <laughs> I, I can't imagine how hard it is, but then we all meet women who've just, they've juggled so much. And I think you're right, Georgie. I think that when you ask them about it afterwards, they they didn't enjoy that period, but they're just getting through amazingly. Anna, you mentioned that you took 12 months off and then you said it, it took a bit to get your head in the game in terms of getting back to work. So what, what sort of things were going through your mind when you were coming back? I think if you haven't had an extended period of time off work, I don't think you can understand that kind of shape to your confidence that it really can have not being at work and not thinking about things as a doctor or an anaesthetist. So I think I think um, imposter syndrome is strong. And I think even things like you turn up on your first day thinking, you know, will I be able to put a cannula in or, you know, will I remember where things are? 
And um, at that stage, often you're really struggling just to get dressed. And, and I think that's probably why we have a bit of discussion in the document, you know, keeping in touch days or even being involved in an M&M or, you know, I think sometimes just having that little kind of glimmer of thought about work, I think, I know for me, I think can make you kind of feel like, yeah, I can do this. You know, my head's still in the game. I know what I'm doing. But it can definitely for anyone, not necessarily mums, but anyone taking, I think, an extended period away from work. I think it does take time to really get yourself back in the game and build your confidence. Did anyone use their keeping in touch days? No, it's funny, isn't it? I asked that question a few times. Did you know about it before you went on leave? No. So hopefully the word is getting out there. Yeah. And to be fair, I know like I guess for Georgie and I, like I know during my first, second maternity leave, I was going to study groups from six weeks and talking deeply about the fellowship exam. So I felt like I was pretty immersed in work and really thinking about it as well. And I was between hospitals anyway, so I'd left one and was starting at another. So it probably wouldn't have been an ideal scenario. I found it much easier coming back the second time around because the first time I'd been um, in BT2, um, and took my five months off and came back as a BC too. And I felt like I had forgotten almost everything. I had to look up all my drug doses. I had to look up all my emergency algorithms. And it all felt very, very new. But the second time, I was sort of towards the end of AT2. And that was much quicker to get my head back into things, even though the leave was longer, because my skills had been better when I left. It was much easier just to slip straight back into things. Plus, I was also post-exam. So I had all of that knowledge still knocking around. That's recognised in the college. They do say that 26 weeks as a BT counts as extended leave as opposed to 52 when you're an AT or a fellow. So in terms of return to work and having conversations with the SOT and planning meetings, they consider it a shorter period of being away from the work when you're a more junior trainee. Which makes sense because by the time you're more senior, you've got those skills, as you say, Amelia, those skills and knowledge are a bit more embedded. Just um, going back to the keeping in touch days, I attended a conference and that was an excellent way of just getting my brain back into thinking about my job and shout out to the wonderful team that organised it. There was a daycare facility on site, so that made things so much easier. I could just duck in and out. I think my daughter was four months or something and it just meant that I could be part of my you know, academic fraternity and still contribute and still feel confident and safe and yeah do it in a way that suited me so it'd be great to see that at conferences in the future. Yeah I think seeing it more and more I know our our last few NSCs we've had childcare who knows what's happening with conferences with COVID but there's some very good family-friendly conferences as well. I've got to say a little plug for the ASA's meeting because there's usually a family night. Oh really how awesome. I think in Adelaide we went to the zoo and got to run around, see the animals all to ourselves. The one in Sydney was we got a ferry across to Luna Park. That's pretty cool. It was totally closed to everyone else, the public, apart from us. But anyway, I'm totally digressing. I wanted to ask about, and I think Georgie, who might have mentioned it, did any of you take leave and then have to change rotations and then come back and start at a whole new hospital? So you've got the whole challenge of leaving baby at home for the first time, picking up where you left off and orientating to a new hospital. I did both of mine into a new job every time. How was that? Yeah, I think it just adds the layer. And I think because of my own experiences, I often say to people, oh, maternity leave, it's so hard. You know, like I think for me, it was really hard, you know, the points that I took it and starting at a new job every time. And 
you know, turning up my first day was as 81 after my second leave doing a Whipples, you know, I couldn't find the theatre. And on that day, I put in a drip, an art line, a thoracic epidural, a central line, a tube. I had an amazing consultant who held my hand. My biggest memory of that day was not working out how to get the patient into the induction bay because I obviously didn't even know where the patient was. But yeah, so I don't recommend that. If you can in any way take your leave and return back to somewhere where you know where the gloves are located, I think it's definitely easier. And it's just an uncontrollable situation, unfortunately. Second time round, I came back to a new hospital, but it's one that I'd been at a few years prior. So I knew the department, I knew where to park, (laughs) I knew where the gloves were. So that was a lot easier. I've worked with a few trainees and they're coming back from their episodes of leave. What advice would you give a consultant who's working with someone who's coming back from leave during their training? I had a really supportive SOT who didn't know exactly how to help me, but at least asked me how he could help me. You know, he sort of was very forthcoming about saying, how can I help you? What do you need? And if I knew what I was going into, which, you know, particularly a first-time parent, it's all a bit eye-opening and how are you going to express, where are you going to express, how are you going to ask your boss for breaks? If I knew those questions, then I think that conversation would have been really easy. I certainly got the impression that they were willing to try to make my transition easier. So I think that's one point is to just ask what they need from you and what, what are your concerns about today how practically can we make this day smoother for you or what are you worried about? Because sometimes the intent is there. It's just that they may not know practically what you need. So just asking the question I think is a big start. I think just acknowledging that it's difficult. It can be hard coming back after prolonged leave and acknowledging that the trainee might be feeling uncertain and will need more support than they would have before. And it doesn't mean that they're not a good trainee and that they're not good at their job. It's very expected that they'll need more support. And as Georgie said, even if you don't know what to do, um, just ask. I was just going to say too, though, Georgie, I think that's really important is not necessarily the consultant in the theatre that day, but I think the SOT and department. So things like having that conversation beforehand, potentially controlling, you know, in some ways what lists you end up on so that you can do some kind of maybe simpler return to work lists that you've got a mentor within the department. So maybe someone who does come up and actually kind of check in with you every now and then and see how you're going and make sure that you've found the place to express or, you know, whatever it is that you need. The thing that I always love is when bosses normalize the fact that we're not perfect. Um, One of my bosses, amazing, amazing woman, used to say, look, I haven't slept well last night. She had a small child. So can you keep a really close eye on me? And so I think her saying that opened the floor for me to say, well, God, I haven't slept either. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought this up. And then we kind of had this normal conversation. We're like, actually, neither of us have slept. So we're going to watch things. We're going to like, you know, closed loop communication, you know kind of allowing that conversation because I think you often feel like you're the only person who's maybe struggling and not perfect. I think that was a real eye-opener for me when I came back from work and I realised that all these people I was working with had young children and they were all sleep-deprived. And I thought, have you been this sleep-deprived and I've been working with you and I never knew that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think that's a really good point that you make, not just in terms of working with trainees who are just coming back from a period of leave, but I I try and take that into working with any trainee and just finding out where are you at? What do we need to cover today? What do we need to get out of this list? Whether you've been in theatre for the last six months, day in, day out, or coming back and it's your first day, I think that's a really important question to ask. And hopefully more people are asking it now. 
you know, Georgia, you were saying that you had a boss who actually asked you about it. And I found Susie with these documents. So my department, the SOTs have actually contacted me. My little heart was soaring saying, Hey, we've got someone returning to work. You know, what, what things do you think we could actually institute within our department to support this person? And what do you think about, you know, rotations and, you know, would you be a mentor to this person? So I think it's nice that it's opened the conversation as well. And what Georgie said is that often people want to help, but don't know what to do. Yeah, great kudos to you guys for writing this document. So well done. What else? What else you thought was important about coming back to work? Definitely the practicalities of breastfeeding. I think it's really important. I think it's a source of anxiety. There's no clear rules in every different hospital. There's a different place, different policy. There's a lot of support in terms of Fair Work Australia and federal and state legislation, but it really depends on the culture of the department and whether or not people have done it before and whether or not it's practical because there may be facilities but they might be on the other side of the hospital or in the obstetric suite away from the main theatres and it certainly makes a difference in terms of if it's easy then the trainee who's returning to work can probably breastfeed or express feed for a longer period of time than if it's a bit more tricky. I think that was a big issue and I've it's something that people have contacted me about having done this document is saying tell me more about the rules, what are my obligations of my employer and how can I how can I have that conversation? And it's something practically that I think that if you are armed with a document, you can go in and say, oh, I'm just wondering how can you support me do this? Absolutely. I think it's helpful for the trainees to have something so they can advocate for themselves because working in busy hospitals, we all know that some days you can't even get a toilet break and you don't get time to drink water. So you really do have to be quite a strong advocate for yourself to say, I need my expressing breaks because otherwise, you know, it's going to affect your health. It's going to affect your baby's health. One thing we haven't touched on, Susie, is courses. So I haven't personally done it, but the crash course is amazing. So run by ladies in Melbourne who are supporting people coming back from a period of leave. But there are lots of other courses that you could consider doing, I think, just to, you know, refresh your knowledge and build your confidence. So I did EMAC not long after coming back to work. Um, and I'm sure that there's other, you know, ALS courses or conferences. I've just done a podcast with Jeanette and Cara from Crash. Oh, amazing. We've been talking about it for a while, but the ASA is going to offer a scholarship for people who are returning to work if they want to do Crash. So if you're an ASA member before you go on leave, then you can apply and, and the ASA will fund, depending on the course, somewhere between 50 to 100% of the course fees. So it's about people feeling confident about coming back to work, so trying to support people where we can on that. The great thing specifically to Crash, I think, meeting a group of people who are having at the same time the same experience that you are and having those contacts and you can then reach out and form a network for yourself, a bit of your own mother's group or parents' group, return to work group. I was going to say that's a really good point, Georgie, because all the other things that we do during our training, well, most of them, um, you do with your peers, you do with a group. You move to a new hospital with a group of registrars, you sit your exam with a group of colleagues, and then you get pregnant and you're very much on your own um, because you can't claim it with your friends, unfortunately. So to meet people that are in the same stage and to all go back to work around the same time would be you know, a great support. Yeah, good point, Amelia. If you could go back to when you were planning leave, taking leave, coming back from leave, do you have any advice that you'd give yourself? Oh, I was thinking about this today. I was reading the article that um, Izzy and I both wrote and it it had the same theme. The theme is that you get pregnant, suddenly you're an inconvenience, you feel very terrible about it, you don't want to ask for anything, you don't want to have different lists, taking leaves 
difficult and, and, you know, even with a very supportive department, it's still really difficult for a department to support you and part-time work. So I think just being a stronger advocate, a stronger advocate for your own health, a stronger advocate for what you need, because ultimately um, pregnancy is something that's a really normal and natural part of life. And it is actually going to happen. And people are going to have babies, you know, 50% of the population are potentially going to have a child. And so I think we need to leave behind this feeling that it's this terrible thing that you have done and feeling so guilty. And yeah, I can't explain the feeling of wanting to just be an anesthetic trainee who didn't have kids and, you know, that it wasn't a part of my life. Absolutely. Just exactly what Anna said is exactly what I would have said. I was thinking about that today as well. And just that, you know, it's such a short period of your life, your pregnancy, and when your babies are very small. I wish I'd probably spent a bit more time focusing on the family than than worrying about work. Mine would be to find people who have done it before you and harness everything they've learnt because we've all been stressed and anxious and reading and poring over your contract and your fair work legislation and all of this stuff. We've all done it and someone else has done it before you. So just find those people and and draw on what they've experienced. And it just means that you're well armed against those anxieties, which may or may not be founded. In a lot of the cases, they're unfounded and people are there to help you. But sometimes you do need to know how to, as Anna and Amelia say, advocate for yourself. How would you, Georgie, find those people? Talk to your SOT firstly. They often are aware of who might have had the same kind of experience that you might have had and link you in with them. You may just know them if you've been at the hospital for a while, then often those um, nurturing people and people who are interested in well-being and welfare are obvious. But if you're starting somewhere new, ask your SOT who might I'd be able to talk to you about this. If it's a big department, there probably is a wellbeing advocate or a welfare advocate who you can also approach as well. George and I were both on our trainee committees for our state as well. And I think actually, interestingly, we got quite a lot of inquiries through that. And it's one of the big stimulus for us actually looking into how we could develop this document. So if someone's really lost and feeling really isolated, especially if you're in a smaller hospital, that's a great place to go and look for help. And they will often be able to connect you into other people as well. But dare I say it, social media is the other place. So Facebook has lots of different groups. I love hearing that people have been on committees. I think it's a really good thing to invest back in the profession. Just again, another little plug in case you guys ever want to get back on a committee soon, that the ASA has got a support initiative for people who are on committees and who are parents of young children. So we will pay for a babysitter for you to be able to attend meetings. And wow. like so it's there. I've, we've, I've shared it with various other groups. They, they found out about it and uh, hopefully other organisations are also adopting similar measures. Amazing. Hopefully one day it won't be amazing. Hopefully it's just what we do, right? Yeah. No, it's true, actually. It's true. It's, it's that mindset. I wanted to ask one final question. What would you like to see in the future around returning to work? What do you dream? I have like a worldwide dream, but it's not really about anaesthetics. My like worldwide dream is that parental leave is taken by both sexes and it's actually a government supported thing where women take six months and men take six months. I think that that from a gender, you know, equity situation and family support situation, the fact that a woman or a man could take a period out of work, I think would be the big step forwards that we need for, you know, all of the the issues that we see around gender in the workplace. But that doesn't really help us in regards to anaesthetics and return to work. Um, mine would be to have some kind of either state-based or national or something where 
part-time or job sharing people could connect with each other to try and make it easier for departments so that they could sort of say here's a solution we'll make it easy for you we're both at this stage of training and we both live in this area and we both would like to share this job I don't know if it's feasible but might make it easier for people to actually return to work in a um, part-time capacity if I had a smaller scale anesthetic dream it would be I guess that departments have the facility to be able to support women and men to work part-time there's lots of lots and lots and lots of barriers to that. But I think if ultimately you were going on leave with the thought in the back of your mind that I can come back to my hospital and ultimately I can pick 0.5, 0.75, you know, I can come back in what capacity will work for me and that might change. I think that would just be the biggest weight lifted for a lot of people. Also, um, parental leave and training needs to be sorted out. It's sorted out in some jurisdictions in some areas, but there's still some people who don't get their entitlements because they're moving hospitals or they're seconded to another health service where they hadn't served 12 months. It should be recognised that in a training program, it's not your decision. You know, rotating to different hospitals is part of your requirement of training. You're not electively filling in these termination advices and separation advices when you're moving from health district to health district. So I think that that needs to be recognised. It's easier in somewhere like Queensland where we, you know, we're mostly employed by Queensland Health. Probably more difficult in places like Victoria where I'm not quite sure, but it sounds like it's different, you know, smaller, different health networks, which may or may not talk to each other or have HR relationships with each other. It's really a source of stress, particularly when you have this huge financial burden about to come into your life. You may or may not have a partner who has access to leave. I think it's an industrial relations issue, but we do need to somehow sort it out so that people can access their paid leave. I was going to say, it's the Queensland Trainee Committee. We were actually contacted by a trainee who was moving to New South Wales for a rotation and was planning a pregnancy. Like that's how far ahead their stress and anxiety was, that they were suddenly going to move and then would lose all their access to all of their maternity leave. Having worked within, you know, Queensland Health for like 12 years or something, the stress is sort of starting prior to even conception for people. And that's a big thing with 12-month contracts for doctors. Is there anything else in the document or about planning leave, taking leave, coming back from leave that you wanted to highlight for people? Could I just highlight the fact that if there's a critical incident that occurs regarding someone who's in a return to work phase of their training, then that really is potentially a trigger for some well-being disaster. And I think it needs to be said that that person will be feeling immensely vulnerable and all of those things that a department might have in place to support someone who's involved in a critical incident really needs to be ramped up for someone who's in a return to work phase. I guess on that theme as well, the other thing we haven't really discussed tonight is that need for level one supervision, especially for trainees coming back to work. And that will be different for everyone, depending at what level of training you're at, where you're returning to. But I think it's definitely a deliberate conversation that should happen during your return to work as well. I suppose another big issue that pertains to all people returning to work in a phase of being a new parent, postnatal depression um, does affect parents. And certainly working in a vulnerable area like anaesthesia, being aware of signs, symptoms, what to look out for in someone who's struggling, I think um, should be in the front of the minds of people who are trying to support that trainee. Did you come across anything in the literature to say whether the prevalence or incidence of postnatal depression was any different for people who were coming into sort of high pressure or high stress environments? We didn't, no. And that was one of the points that we were looking for to see if um, critical incidents were increased or if well-being 
factors such as depression, suicide, that type of thing were increased, but we couldn't find it. We, we thought that it was a two-hit hypothesis. You know, it's a high-risk field and it's a high-risk time of someone's life. So we figured that they would just compound each other. Yeah, but we couldn't find anything specific in the literature. I think what I'd love to do now is just thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you for also writing, I think, a really excellent document. I hope it, it's useful. I'm sure it is actually useful for a lot of people. But thank you for also spending the time and going through it with me. Thanks, You're Susie. welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Susie. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with three amazing women, as well as with this special guest appearance from baby Emma. There is some overlap between this episode and one I did earlier, episode 28 on pregnancy and the anaesthetist. And that is because all five women worked together. So if you want to know more about pregnancy and the anaesthetist, then I suggest you go back and listen to episode 28. We do also mention the crash course, which is a course that helps people return to work, not just for people who are returning from parental leave. And again, if you'd like to know more about that, then I do do a podcast episode with Jeanette Wright and Kara Allen, who are the masterminds with getting the course going here in Australia. That's episode 26. And as I said in this podcast, there is a scholarship available for ASA members who would like to do that course. And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I hope you found all of these resources useful. It is to celebrate International Women's Day. And if you have any other ideas or feedback about the podcast, then please do email me asa at asa.org.au. All right. Hope you stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>